when uh, it was suggested to the worship planning team that we have a full-fledged Mother's Day service, not just a, a video, uh, Pastor Errol asked me later if I would be willing to preach uh, because he was going out of town this weekend. Isn't it interesting how he's always going out of town when I preach? <laughs> must be something there. But as I thought about this privilege, I, I knew that I needed help, so I asked all the pastor's wives to a meeting to brainstorm with me. I, I literally did. I wrote them an, an email and I said, the Lord has told me that you were to meet with me on Monday night, and that was two weeks ago, and four of them were able to come and we had just a tremendous session. By the way, it's a privilege for me to speak on Mother's Day because I had just a wonderful, wonderful mother. At my mother's graveside, my one brother said, some people may have been loved as much by their mothers but no one has been loved more. And we all agreed with that. Just a wonderful, godly mother that we had. So it's a privilege for me to honor mothers today. But because I'd heard so many uh, mothers who struggle with Mother's Day services for a variety of reasons, even to the point of not wanting to come to church on this day, I was determined to make this Mother's Day the most encouraging and challenging service that we could fashion. And as a group, we talked about the reasons that some mothers, not all, but some mothers recoil from a Mother's Day service, and it became apparent that mothers too often define themselves by their many roles and their feelings of success or, for, or failure in those roles. And one of the pastor's wives at that particular session said, why don't we focus instead of on the roles and success or failure in those roles, why don't we uh, focus on our identity in Christ? And immediately the other women agreed with that. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the wives who couldn't come because of a prior commitment uh, wrote in an email, I think you should focus on our identity in Christ. And so there it was. We knew that that was what God wanted us to do. Essentially, this means that we do not define ourselves uh, by our roles in life, nor by the qualities, traits, or faults others attribute to us, but we're defined by God's assessment of us. Most of us, men and women here this morning, allow ourselves to be defined by our roles or by the things people say about us. I'm a housewife, I'm a working mother, I'm an electrician, I'm an administrator, a teacher. And all of those describe something about us, but they don't define our identities, who we really are. You know, after we've received Jesus as our Savior, he begins a lifetime good work in us to help us become more and more like him. That's the objective after our salvation. And as a result, we don't have to live up to anyone else's views of us or our own descriptions, nor do we have to try to be someone we're not. I'm not like Errol. <laughs> and he's very happy not to be like me. <laughs> but that kind of comparison is totally unnecessary and illegitimate. We should never be comparing ourselves with each other. 
or by someone that we lift up in our own estimation. Instead, with my identity being shaped by Christ, I'm accepted, secure, and significant in Him. Now, there's an insert in your program. If you took a program this morning, and in that insert, there's the question, who am I? And then there are three different categories. I'm accepted, I'm secure, and I'm significant. And there's scriptures all through there that show you how you're accepted, secure, and significant in Christ. We won't have time to go through those today. And this is just scratching the surface, this little sheet. We could have three or four sheets just like this. And it will take us a lifetime, even into eternity, to discover all that we are in Christ, all that God has in store for us as we become more and more like him. And someday we shall see him face to face and we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. What a wonderful uh, uh, progress that we have in him. So it's important for me to have a firm grasp of what Jesus is like. That is what he's trying to reproduce in me. And today I'm going to focus on just a few incidents in Jesus' life that give us some hints of how we want to become more like Jesus. And I'm going to use the fruit of the Spirit to guide us. Now, just as Pastor Errol, a couple of weeks ago, used the armor of God to show us that Jesus is, in fact, the full armor of God, Jesus is the personification of the fruit of the Spirit as well. And so when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we know that we're looking at Jesus, and that's what he wants to reproduce in us. And so I've given some thought about what Jesus is like. We we really need to look into that. So please take a look at uh, what I wrote just a couple of days ago. You see, I'm attracted by Jesus' fearlessness as he spoke truth to power. No one ever did it like he did. Those Pharisees and those scribes, they could squash you like a bug if they wanted to. They had all the power at their, at their fingertips. But they could never lay a hand on Jesus because his time had not come. And I admire his wisdom and humility. There's something about that on just about every page of the Gospels. He was down to earth and didn't care about wealth or comfort. As a matter of fact, he said, foxes have their holes and birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was comfortable and down to earth. He was comfortable with the af- as comfortable with the affluent and powerful as he was with the poor and the outcast. Most men, once they get into the powerful and the wealth the ranks, that's where they like to stay. It's fun up there. But Jesus was different. His compassion for hurting people was amazing. And again, we see it on every page. When he got angry, it was for all the right reasons. And no one could argue with his response to wicked behavior. When he cleansed that temple, they could have rushed him, they could have put him down, and they could have beat him, but they couldn't because they knew he was right. He could tell the difference between the letter of the law and the true intent of the law, and we would far rather look at the true intent, and then we break that even. He was always one step ahead of his enemies as they tried to trick him over and over again. Instead, he tricked them with another question. Even when they came to arrest him, he wasn't taken by surprise. 
And there's so, so much more. I just admire Jesus. I love to look at him. I love to think about him. I love to remember what he was like. You see, Jesus was a man among men. And Jesus was also a man among women. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we're told that many women traveled with Jesus. And they supported him financially. Verse 3 says these women were helping to support them out of their own means, helping to support them, Jesus and the disciples. They didn't have any regular flow of income. It was the women. And it says there were many women who followed. And they helped to support Jesus and his enterprise. So Jesus was a man among men, a man among women, and he was a man among children. You remember how he took the children in his lap and he loved them. So this morning, we, everyone in this room can learn something about what Jesus wants to make in us. So we're ready to find our identity in him, and that leads us to our central truth for the day. Nothing particularly spectacular, but our many roles do not define us when our identity is in Jesus. But you can let your roles define you if you're not careful. And you can feel as if you're a success or a failure in life depending on how you see yourself fulfilling your roles or by listening to other people's assessments. I do this all the time. After almost 47 years in ministry, I can hardly think of myself as anything but pastor. As a matter of fact, sometimes I think pastor is my first name. <laughs> pastor this, pastor, pastor. And, and I can get into thinking of myself as pastor, not a child of God being formed by Jesus. No, above all, I'm a blood-bought, redeemed child of God who's accepted unconditionally by God. He doesn't leave me there. He accepts me there, but then he wants me to improve. I'm secure in this state because of what Jesus did and because he chose me first, and then I chose him. And I have significance because of who Jesus says I am, not what others say I am. Now, before we look at some of the fruit of the Spirit, I want you to hear from three women this morning who are learning to appreciate their identity in Christ. And uh, these are illustrations of the central truth that we have. And I know that some of you, maybe all of you, will be able to identify with each thing they say. Uh, Sarah Schlappi is going to be our first speaker, and then Carrie Furman, and followed by Ruth Garcia. Sarah? I've struggled with finding my identity in Christ for a long time. I've always been very shy, and from age 10, I've struggled with my weight and body image. I didn't have a very positive view of myself, and since I saw myself in a negative light, I assumed everyone else did as well. I always felt like everyone around me was judging me, my personality, my weight, my looks, my clothes, and they were thinking that I didn't measure up. I believe people didn't really enjoy having me around. They merely tolerated me. The first time I really remember being confronted with the error of my thinking was when I was 19. I heard a guy speaking on pride and humility, and he said that the idea that you walk into a room and everyone 
is critiquing you is pride. I was shocked because that's exactly how I felt, but I didn't think anyone was thinking good thoughts about me. He asked, how prideful is it to believe that you are the sole focus of everyone's attention to think that no one has anything better to do than think about you and judge you? Then in my early 20s, I did a Bible study on finding your identity in Christ. That study really changed my spiritual walk. The verses we studied weren't new to me. I growing up in church, I was saved when I was seven, but I started to apply these verses to my life and I began to believe that they were true for me, that God did love me, that he created me uniquely and perfectly with the personality and look he wanted me to have, that I have value and worth exactly as I am. As I began to see myself as Christ sees me, my confidence grew exponentially. I'll be honest, this is an area I still struggle in though. But now I know my triggers and when I am most vulnerable and I know what lies Satan likes to use. I work with 360 student ministries and when I'm tired or stressed or when I've let my walk with God falter, I can find myself comparing myself to other leaders or believing students are comparing us. I question whether I'm a good enough leader, if I have anything of value to offer the ministry or simply if they find me cool enough. Today's Mother's Day. And being in my 30s and still single without children, it can be really hard. Most of the time I'm content with where God has me in life, but there are many times I struggle with, why not me? What's wrong with me that no one wants me? It can feel isolating and lonely if I dwell on it. It becomes exactly that. But the difference now is that I've learned to deal with these crises in identity. I prepare for times when I know I'm going to be most vulnerable with prayer. And when the lies and doubts start to creep in, I take every thought captive and replace it with the truth of God's word. I have a ring of verses on note cards at home that speak specifically to the common lies that I tend to buy into. But one of my favorite verses comes from Jeremiah 29:11 that says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. So, on this Mother's Day, I am choosing to find my identity in Christ, and I hope that you will as well. Good morning. From the time that I was little, all I wanted when I grew up was to be a mom. <clears throat> I carried that dream through high school, and as it drew to a close and came time to apply for college, I knew that wasn't what I wanted. I had no desire to go to school and pursue a career. I wanted to meet a great guy, get married, have kids, and be a stay-at-home mom. <clears throat> After high school, I got a job and roomed with some girls from the church. I tried college for a year and worked a few more years before I met my husband his senior year of college. Within the first year of marriage, we moved to a different state, bought a house, and got pregnant. I had three kids and two miscarriages within four years. Being a stay-at-home wife and mom was the desire of my heart, but I soon found out that dreams don't always match reality. Never-ending diapers, bottles, crying, cleaning, and toys, along with trying to figure out my role as a wife, living thousands of miles away from my family with limited ability to get out and meet new people, and my husband working a lot of hours, I was worn out. I grew up in the church and serving is something I've always loved to do. I had been playing the piano on the worship team when my kids were small and as my oldest started kindergarten, I jumped into children's ministry on Wednesday nights. I joined the Spy Kids staff and I was a table leader at Mops. 
During this time, I also started meeting with a small group of women on Monday nights. We shared our joys and struggles. Although I've been a believer since I was seven years old, it became apparent to me through a wise friend that I was trying to find my value in all of these different roles that I, play, that I played, a wife, a mom, a musician, a children's leader, etc. I was defining myself by all of the different things that I did. Through time spent on my knees in prayer, reading God's word and wise advice, I began to realize that although God has gifted me to serve my family and the church, none of these things or these roles make me who I am. First and foremost, I am a child of God, adopted into his family, forgiven and made completely whole through the sacrifice of his precious son. And because of who God is, he has gifted me to serve. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says, For we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as I continue in my roles as a wife, mom, and servant in the church, I know that only Jesus working through me will accomplish his good purpose. And if all of those roles were taken away from me, I am still God's child. So on this Mother's Day, I am choosing to find my identity in Christ, and I hope that you will too. Good morning. I'm so proud of those friends of mine. <laughs> I grew up having expectations of what my life should look like. Should is a bad word for me. When I think relationships should be a certain way or circumstances should have a certain outcome, then I tend to want to control. Think about it, ladies. Whether you are a mother or not, we do control a lot in life. Our households, um, if we have a job, the use of our time, what we wear, who we spend time with, what we eat, etc. And we are to be responsible and make God-honoring decisions in these areas that we can control. And that's not the hard part for me, though. I don't find identity in those outward aspects of life. I tend to struggle with the bigger expectations. Expectations in my roles. Expectation in relationships. When I was younger, I remember thinking of myself at times as either a success or a failure based on what kind of a mom I was, or how involved in ministry I was, or how my kids were doing. I came to realize that it was possible to allow my children, my marriage, or even ministry to become an idol in my life. By elevating these roles above my relationship to Christ, I made these roles my God. So anytime there was disappointment in one of these areas, it had much more significant impact on me than necessary. This can pertain to any role in life for men and for women. I was basing my value on how I thought I was doing, how I thought my kids were doing, how others saw my ministry, or how I thought things should be, and if I was achieving that false standard. I have learned, and I continue to learn, that apart from any other person in my life, apart from any relationship, apart from every role, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am forgiven and whole. I am washed by his blood and I am promised eternal life. So now I can trust my Lord with the big things that I can't control. I can release my children and my grandchildren to him. I can release my husband to him. I can release my future to him. I can trust him in the empty nest years 
that are fast approaching. I can trust him in the disappointments and in the losses. I can live each new day for him and allow for his will to be done, not mine. So on this Mother's Day, I am choosing to find my true identity in Christ, and I hope that you will too. turning that thing off. Sorry about that. Uh, we could stop right here and the morning would be complete. But you know that's not going to happen because I want to show you from the Word of God the fruit of the Spirit and that's what the Lord Jesus is trying to form in us. And so look at the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As I said in my introduction this morning, after we've received Jesus as our Savior, he begins a lifetime good work in us to help us become more and more like him. And one of Jesus' least emphasized qualities is his joy. Have you ever thought about that? How many sermons have you heard about the joy of Jesus? You know, we usually think of Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we think of him in somber terms and, you know, his great teachings and so forth, but we seldom focus on his joy. So let's consider that for just a few minutes. In Mark chapter 12, verse 37, it says, The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Now, friends... Uh, 25,000, 30,000 people don't come around eager to listen to somebody who's just beating on them and, you know, uh, angry and, and, and Jesus was never that way. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus, not only did he speak with lots of stories, but he had a lot of humor. Uh, I read a book many years ago by Elton Trueblood called The Humor of Christ. And we miss the humor of Christ because we don't understand the culture and we don't, under, we don't understand the times in which Jesus was living. Now, you're not going to see the, the humor in this next illustration, but believe me, the people there did. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and following, Jesus, we read this, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. And by the way, he's talking about one of the most important subjects that you could talk about. He's talking about the cost of discipleship. If you want to be my disciple, here's what you've got to do. You've got to count the cost. And so he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Now, the reason we don't see the humor in that is that we are not aware of the fact that King Herod was a masterful architect. And he was a genius, believe me. The, the buildings and the, and the areas that he built were just mind-boggling. Caesarea Maritima was a huge harbor, and he invented ways to fill that harbor that had never been done before. The temple that he constructed was considered one of the great wonders of the world, and people from all over the world came to see it. He not only did things in Israel, but he designed things in Greece, Greece of all places, and then in Rome as well. They loved him as an architect. But King Herod started so many projects in Israel 
that he didn't finish them all. He got excited about something and just left it unfinished. And so I can see Jesus with a twinkle in his eye and a nod of his head, and I can see the people roaring with laughter at his, he pokes fun at the king. Nobody did that. But Jesus, they listened to him, and they heard him with great delight. So then we come to a a situation in Jesus' life when he sent the disciples out to uh, cast out demons and and do wonderful works uh, for him. And uh, they come back, and they're rejoicing uh, in uh, what they had seen and what they had done. And so in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and following, we read this. When the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. Yes, he told them, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy, and you can walk among snakes and scorpions and and crush them. Nothing will injure you. But don't rejoice because evil spirits obey you. Rejoice because your names are registered in heaven. Now here's the key verse, verse 21. At that same time, Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that Jesus ministered in the joy of the Holy Spirit in literally everything that he did. And so should we. Friends, Jesus wants you and me to be people of joy, optimism, and good humor. Are you? Or are you just facing life with woe is me? Ain't it awful? No, no, no. Spirit of joy. You can have that joy if you know who you are in Christ. And then there's the... uh, Fruit of patience, love, joy, patience. We find Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9. And there he is with Elijah and with Moses, and they're talking about Jesus' exodus. That is, when he's going to go back to his father. And it's a wonderful experience up there, and the three disciples are there, and they're coming down from the mountain, and they see the rest of the disciples in a big, big argument with the Pharisees and with people all around. And it's just a tumult of of chaos. And Jesus comes down and he says, what on earth is the matter? And the disciples basically say to Jesus, well, there's this man here and he's got this little boy and he just rides around, he falls into the fire and everything and we try to cast out the demon and we couldn't do it. Look what Jesus says. You people have no faith. How long must I stay with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. And then Jesus heals him instantly. You see, Jesus was clearly exasperated with the disciples' lack of growth, insight, and faith, as he was on several occasions. But he kept working with the disciples to form them into a formidable kingdom force. Friends, there are plenty of people who are around us who are going to try our patience. And we won't always respond with perfect patience. 
but we can work on it. When people let us down, goof up, make life difficult for us, we need to call on the Lord for the fruit of the spirit of patience. When your husband lets you down, when your husband tries your patience, when your wife lets you down, she tries your patience, when someone at work just makes life miserable for you, you call on the Lord for the fruit of patience because that's who you are in Christ. Slowly but surely, we will become more like Jesus in our patience, really really. Let's look at our central truth again. Our many roles do not define us when our identity is in Jesus. So critical, so critical. So let's grow in joy and patience to become more like Jesus, and we can grow in kindness too. Look at Luke chapter 7 with me. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. A large crowd followed him. Funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son. A large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry, he said. And he walked over to the coffin and touched it, something you shouldn't do. And the bearer stopped. Young man, he said, I tell you, get up. Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. I'm struck by the translation. His heart overflowed with compassion. This widow was in dire circumstances. Because as a widow whose only son had died, she had no other means of support in her older age. And so the probability was that she would have to go and beg for food for the rest of her life, and she would just be an underling for the whole rest of her life. You know, I wish that my heart overflowed with more compassion than it does. How about you? You see, there's so many needs around us. And I get bombarded, and I'm sure you do, with uh, mass mailings that come in. And everyone has just got a story that tugs at my heart. And I know that I can't relate to everything. But I want to tell you that Jesus didn't relate to everything. I want to take you to the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was a huge pool in the center of uh, Jerusalem. Well, not in the center, but... uh, outskirts of Jerusalem, but it was huge. It was the the size of a football field, at least 100 by 300 yards. And so it wasn't just one of these little pools that, uh, you know, 10 by 15 that a few people would get around. And there were maybe hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who would sit there and they were waiting for the troubled waters to, to begin. And then the first one to jump in was the belief would be healed. And so Jesus comes up to this man, this crippled man. He says, do you want to get well? Crazy question. But he asked him, do you want to get well? And the man said, well, of course I want to get well. And right there and then Jesus healed him. But it doesn't say that Jesus healed anybody else. Just that one man. Now, there are many occasions when he would, from dawn to dusk, just spend hours 
healing people and, and ministering to people. But on this occasion, he did not. So my answer to this dilemma of wanting to have compassion and kindness for all is that I can't do everything, but for God's sake, do something. What I suggest to you is that you choose a few, maybe three, four uh, enterprises that you can believe in, that you really care about. And then you, you pray for the others and, and you, you know, ask God to, to meet those needs, but you're laser focused. Uh, God has given Julie a laser focus on Haiti right now. And that's where she and Errol are. God has just struck her heart that she has to do something for those orphans. And right now she's over there and she's finding a school, a, a teacher to teach these orphan children English. And so God will tug at your heart, royal family kids, uh, living alternatives or something like that. And let your heart move out in compassion and kindness for those ministries. Sometimes all you can do is pray. And if your heart is full of compassion, that's really doing something. It's not just nothing. And then I love Jesus' gentleness. Sometimes I've asked Jesus to give me more gentleness. Here's the story. You know it. It's the story of Mary and Martha. And Martha's in the kitchen. Jesus is teaching the disciples and a few other people. I suppose there were some other women there. But Mary was certainly there learning at Jesus' feet. Martha's there cooking. She's getting steamed up and... And finally, she lunges out of that kitchen, and look at what she says. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, you can read what follows in two different ways. You can read it as a, in a scolding way, or you can read it with gentleness. Let's try the scolding way. Martha, Martha. You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what is better, not be taken from her. You could read it that way. And you could see Jesus getting disturbed. She comes right smack in the middle of his teaching. But that's not the way Jesus responded, I don't believe. Let's try the gentle way. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what's better and not be taken from her. Knowing Jesus' respect and appreciation for women, I'm certain that he used the gentle way. Fathers and mothers, how often do you find yourself using the scolding tone when gentleness would get you much further. Husbands and wives, same question. Teachers, supervisors, managers, co-workers, scolding or gentle? Now, Jesus was firm with Martha. He didn't give in to her request. He sent her back to the kitchen by herself. But he preserved her dignity with a gentle answer so that she could cook with her self-respect intact. 
We've all been taught that we catch more bees with honey, haven't we? Than with vinegar. But how often does vinegar come out of our mouths and not the honey? Gentleness is the Jesus way, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Jesus' way is always the best way. Take a look at just a few vignettes and we'll be done. Goodness. Gentleness, goodness. It says, he went about doing good and healing the sick. Jesus had a disposition of goodness. He, was, he, he wasn't a frowner. He wasn't a, a grumbler. He wasn't a complainer. He, he didn't see all the sin around him and just get, you know, irritated. No, Jesus was filled with goodness. And out of that goodness, he reached out and did good, healing the sick. Self-control. Uh, you may not agree with me on this, but I, I think I'm right in this. The, the woman caught in adultery. Here's the scene. We have the Pharisees. Uh, they come and they bring this woman and they throw her at Jesus' feet. And they say, this, we caught this woman in adultery. What do you say we should do to her? They're trying to trick him, trying to get him to say the wrong thing because according to the law, she should die. She should be stoned to death. And Jesus, I think, just took a deep breath and he got down on one knee. He begins to write in the sand or in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. And they keep ragging at him. The text says they just keep pounding away at him. What do you say? We caught her in adultery. What do you say? Finally, Jesus stands up. I believe in a very calm voice. He said, let him who has no sin be the first one to cast a stone. And then he gets down on his knee again, begins to write again. We don't know what he wrote, but we know how they responded. It says one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. Now, why do I call that self-control? I call that self-control because these men had set her up. They had her uh, get with a man. They did catch her in the act but it was because they'd set it up. Because the law says that you bring the man and the woman. So Jesus knew. And he could have been angry at them for what they were doing, but he was controlled. And then he turns to the woman, where are all your accusers? Well, they're all gone. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Forgiveness is not one of the fruit of the Spirit. At least it's not listed, but, you know, it's one of the things that we deal with most often. And we look at, G we look at Peter as he's denying Jesus three times. I don't know the man. Leave me alone. Then they come back. And, no, you're, you were with him. And then he swears and he starts to cuss. Blankety blank. I tell you, I don't know him. And a third time, he just says, leave me alone. I don't know this man at all. Jesus looked at him, caught his eye, says Peter went out and wept bitterly. From that point on, Peter thought he was useless. He thought that Jesus would never use him again. And then he's out fishing. Jesus sees him, or he sees Jesus on the seashore cooking breakfast. And you know the story how that Jesus comes along by Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, you know I'm fond of you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Jesus comes again and he says to him, Peter, do you, 
do you love me? Do you really love me? Well, you know that I'm fond of you, Lord. I, we're, we're best friends. Feed my sheep. Jesus comes again and says, Peter, do you really, really love me? Lord, you know that I love you. And the Lord Jesus shows Peter then that he's forgiven. And he wants him to continue in service for the Lord. How many times have you failed the Lord? Miserably. And you think that he's got no, nothing left for you. There's no way he'll have you back to serve him. Feed my sheep. He forgives. And how many times have you been hurt, scorched, and put down by someone else, and you feel like a worm? You've been betrayed. Forgive. Forgive as Jesus did. Forgive. Men, women, teenagers, boys and girls. And then finally, the fruit of the spirit of love. We see Jesus' love on every page. But I see Jesus' love in its, almost its most powerful sense. There he is hanging on the cross. He's absolutely dehydrated. His heart is basically thumping out of his chest. He has cramps that won't go away as he pushes himself up and down. He's asphyxiated. He can hardly breathe. Pain racking his body. And just before he dies, he takes a look at his mother who's looking at him in all of that anguish, all of that torture. And he looks down on her and says, Dear woman, not dear mother, because he's the savior of the world. Dear woman, here's your son. I'm I, I make, making provision for you to be taken care of now that I'm gone. And he turns to the disciple and he said, Here is your mother the love of Jesus expressed with his dying breaths. So folks, here's the bottom line. If we want our identity to be in Jesus, not in our multiple roles, we need to know what Jesus was like, how he would respond in various situations, and then we need to act as Jesus would. And then... When you fail to act as Jesus would, you don't give up in failure and disgust because he keeps working in you to complete the process. Winston Churchill said, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. You turn your back on Jesus and you say, let's try this again. Lord, help me next time this happens. Lord, help me to anticipate this next time. You keep on trying. He keeps on working. And you become more and more like Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit. But you don't just flip-flop around superficially with no purpose. No, we strive to finish our race, to receive the prize of the high calling that's in Christ Jesus. We make it our business to be more like Jesus. Our daily desire, our daily effort, it's a joy-filled and productive effort that constantly challenges us 
to bring honor and glory to him because of our great love for him. Amen? Amen. Listen, it just doesn't get any better than this. We keep trying. He keeps working. We become more like Jesus. Praise the Lord. I hope you'll think a lot about that in the days ahead. Let's stand for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we recognize that we have a high and lofty goal here. We'll never achieve it in this lifetime. But we can be learning it. We can be becoming more. And someday you're going to finish the job. And when we get to heaven, we will be like you. We will be like you for we'll see you as you are. We see through a glass darkly now, but someday again we'll see you face to face. So Lord, give us this vision, give us this hope, give us this drive and this willingness to be formed and shaped by you because we love you. And we pray, God, that you'll do this for our good and your glory. Amen.